And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we discuss our picks on air. I'm your host, Jason Kleberg, and today I'm joined by Diane Paragas, writer and director of the amazing film Yellow Rose, which you can buy now or rent on any streaming platform or pick up on Blu-ray. Diane, how are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I weathered um, a pretty scary snowstorm, but we came out the other side. Yes, the good old nor'easters. Yeah, gotta love them. And we're going to talk about Yellow Rose a bit more in a little while. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe your background in film and what brought you to being able to direct Yellow Rose? Yeah, so I'm I'm one of those non-film school directors, um, I think mostly in part because just wasn't any female role models when I was growing up. So I didn't really know that could be an option for me when I went to college. Um, I think in hindsight, I really would have loved to study it. Um, but I came into film kind of later on in my um, career. I, I moved to New York. I studied um, China studies, Asia studies um, in college. And then uh, I had a minor in film. And yeah, so I ended up in advertising. And then I I found my way to direct commercials. And then, um, and then around the time I... Uh, I'd finished producing a show in, in Asia. I came back to New York and that's when I kind of started writing Yellow Rose, which was a long time ago. And, um, and it took a long time to get it made. And in the process of getting all the no's from people like Hollywood people and producers I managed to get in front of, um, I found my way into directing documentaries. So um, not knowing when or if that would ever happen with Yellow Rose, I started making other things and eventually directed documentaries for PBS. And um, and then uh, I directed a film called Brooklyn Bohem, which did the festival circuit and we got bought by Showtime. And that's when I kind of came back to Yellow Rose and started really pushing for it hard, which is a couple of years ago. Around the time I picked it up, I started picking up my commercial career as a commercial director. Um, so, you know, I was able to con continue directing and directing all kinds of different stuff other than documentaries. By the time we got financing to do Yellow Rose, I, I had had so many different kinds of directing under my belt. So Yellow Rose is about, um, a teenage girl who's Filipino and undocumented, who's living in a small town in Texas. And she dreams, um, maybe one day of, of, of becoming a country, a country singer. Um, and that's when her mom gets picked up by ICE. And, um, and she has to kind of go on this journey of finding a new home. And in the process, she, she finds her voice as an artist um, in a world that's sort of very unaccepting of her. So it was, it was something that was really deeply personal. And um, by the time I made it, I became a mom, which you heard my daughter in the background. <laughs> so just life is very interesting. And then, of course, uh, Trump during that time had just had all these very strict anti-immigrant policies. And it just felt the, you know, kind of like the perfect time to make that film. And, uh, and I think I was ready to tell it because I could really understand all of the different characters. In many ways, it's a story about family and acceptance and, and home. And that's something I had a much deeper understanding as a mother. And, and just, you know, having made so many films and had just life experience behind me. So 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first real like Filipino movie put out by a major studio. Is that is, is that correct? That is correct. Um, that was put out for theatrical release. There's been films that have been picked up for like, you know, video or DVD and stuff. But as a theatrical release, that's correct. First Filipino film released by a major Hollywood studio. So I'm, you know, that's, that was the big reason that I kind of pushed myself to keep going. And I kind of never, never forgot about it. Um, And it was always sort of driving me in my career. I just really wanted to see a Filipino on the big screen. And if, if nobody else was going to do it, I was going to do it. It's a shame that that's a culture that's so underrepresented on screen. We are virtually invisible, I would say. I mean, you just don't do not see Filipino characters, even though we're the second largest Asian population. You just don't you don't feel that in, in movies and in television. It was hard for me to believe that Yellow Rose was your directorial debut. Obviously, like you said, you'd done other things, directed documentaries and some commercials, but it was a really well done film. And uh, that kind of leads us into your topic that you chose, top five directorial debuts. Is there any reason other than this being your directorial debut that you chose this topic? No, I just think it's um, it's interesting to see. And, uh, you, you know, as we talk about these films, these are all filmmakers I greatly admire. It's, it's interesting to see where people began their cinematic journey. And, yeah, I'm excited to, t- to talk about it. Can't wait to get into that. But first, we've got to talk about what we've been watching. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to start off with something that I saw recently that I really, really loved. Are you a horror movie fan at all? Not too much. That's the one genre I'm not that. <laughs> I have I have the ones I like, but they're, they're the old classics. Then you may not have heard of a film called Underwater from 2020. On a scale from one to ten... How bad's my rig? My ten. We drilled to the bottom of the ocean, and we don't know what came out. Gotta get to the station. How did we even get there? We walk up. We just gonna walk with insufficient oxygen across the bottom of the ocean. We don't know what's out there. Worst idea ever! So, underwater is kind of like a mixture of Alien and The Abyss. It's about this crew of oceanic researchers, and they work for this deep sea drilling company. They're at the very, very depths of the ocean. And all of a sudden, this research facility, the structure becomes damaged. Floods start happening, and they have to try and find their way out of this deep water research center. But not everything is as it seems. And there may be something causing the structure to fail. Mm. Uh, stars Kristen Stewart, Vincent Cassell. Oh, and, yes. Uh, I remember. Th- I didn't see it, but I know that film. Yes. yes. Now that, now that, that I looks mentioned really, Kristen Stewart's That name. looked really great. Yeah. I'm a fan of hers. I directed her in something early in her career, and I just always admire her. She's I've always amazing. been a fan of hers, too. I think yeah. she's great. Uh, this really kind of showcases some of her horror chops and... I love this film. I thought it was really, really exciting. I thought it was a fun adventure. It has a lot of twists and turns in it that you don't see coming and uh, an explosive ending. Wow. It's really tough to do underwater stuff, right? Especially yep. at the bottom of the ocean because you're talking like super dark, super blue, but it's really, really good looking film. 
it had some creative deaths as well, which I think you want in a horror type of action movie. Uh, Underwater from 2020. I really dug it. And I think that if you're into horror films or uh, into things like Alien or Abyss, this is going to scratch that itch. Awesome. I will watch it. I was interested in it when it came out. I'm also a huge Vincent Hissel fan. So, um, oh, how could you not those, be? Those, those two right there recommend it. I have been sort of going through the Oscar list to try to get, you know, I want to see all of the ones and, you know, the, the, I've seen almost all of them now, but the one that I just absolutely loved was uh, Sound of Metal. You sounded great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we just need to film hearing is deteriorating rapidly we'll come back till then lou we just keep going okay no lou no let's play tomorrow let's see what it's like okay i'm gonna be like a click track you can play to me just blew me away riz ahmed's performance the use of sound design is extraordinary it reminded me what, of one of my favorite films, uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, and in that film, um, which is by Julian Schnabel, um, he, try, he attempted to give the audience an approximation of what it would be like to be in a, you know, like completely paraplegic that you, you can only, only this character's eyes were able to be, like that's the only thing he could use. And he, could, he really immersed you in that feeling and did it in an artistic way. And this one is, you really feel what it's like to lose your hearing. And it just immerses you so deeply into it. Um, it's a fascinating use of cinema when, when sound is such an important, is, is at the front and center of the filmmaking. So that was really exciting to watch. I highly recommend it. And Riz Ahmed, I'm, I'm, got, I'm rooting for him to win the best, best actor. He deserves it. Very, very strong recommend for me. Maybe my favorite film of the year. I'm going to bring up one more thing that I've seen this week. It's a new film on HBO Max and part of WB's new uh, streaming same day as theater release films. It's called The Little Things. You're not exactly a department favorite. Things probably changed a lot since you left. You still got to catch him, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not that much has changed then, right? <laughs> I can assure you all we are taking a 24-7 all-hands-on-deck approach to these cases. Guy's a shark. If he stops, he dies. He likes to drive. Probably has a decent car, maybe two. High mileage. You must really like my car. I do. How's the truck space? Something I gotta know. How's a guy with the best clearance rate in the department work 15 years without a promotion? Maybe I didn't go to the right church. When I look in your eyes, what I see, it ain't good. Starring Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto, 
This is one that is going to be hard for me to recommend. And I had really, really high hopes for this film. It turns into just kind of, it's almost like a seven clone, but mm. done not as well. Not <laughs> Yeah, that's a shame when that happens. Yeah. I think it was written during the early 90s and it was never updated until today. And it's, it just, it, it felt that way, right? Exactly. It felt yeah. like a movie written in the 90s when narratives have far surpassed what's going on in this film, which is a shame because the performances are really great. Denzel is always great. Jared Leto is he's playing this creepy kind of suspect in, in a crime and he's great playing a creepy role. I don't think there's really any kind of role he doesn't play that he's not creepy in. That's true. And then uh, Remy Malik is just criminally miscast. I, I love him, but he's he's just miscast as this determined detective. I heard that. I heard the same thing. Yeah, it feels like he's a, it, it almost looks like he's a child in detective's clothes and it just does not work. I think the thing that most baffled me about the film is the editing. And I'll just give you one example. There's a scene where it's just two people eating breakfast and there's like a hundred cuts in a three to four minute scene. And it just was so confusing. It's like taking three's action scenes all over again. And the gravity of any situation just kind of evaporated because of this editing. It felt like the editor was trying to direct the film from a different angle than the, than the director. And I thought that was kind of a shame, but uh, yeah, hard to recommend. Uh, it's, I guess it's worth checking out if you're a really big fan of Denzel or Jared Leto, but I just, I can't believe that this script didn't get any better 30 years on the shelf. And I, I can't recommend spending two hours with it. I hear you. Um, I'm going to do one more too, since you did one. Um, and it's my other favorite film of the year. These are both films I saw last week. Um, and that's Minari or Minari. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, Please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. What about grandma smell? It's a Korean-American film by Lee Isaac Chung, and um, which stars Steven Yuen, um, and has just been cleaning up at the Critics' Awards. It's a story of a Korean family um, who moves from California to the heartland, and um, the father uh, tries to start a farm in the kind of the middle of nowhere. And it's the story of this family just struggling to survive, but it's just a beautiful beautiful film it won sundance both the audience award and the jury prize and um it's just just a just a beautiful beautiful film and um i could not recommend it more it's right up there with sound of metal for me is two of the top films of the year um so just wanted to say that just because i loved it so much i wanted to shout it out I can't wait to see this. I've been seeing all kinds of talk about it today because as we record this, the Golden Globe nominations came out and this was a huge snub and people are saying like Steven Yuen deserved to be nominated. And so I can't wait to watch it to support him. I love his work. Yeah, it's also because the Golden Globes decided to, to put it into the foreign language category. So it was not eligible for best picture or best drama. 
Uh, so that kind of sucked. Even though it was <laughs> recorded, it, it was made here, correct? Yeah, it, it was made here and it's about the American dream. It's about, it's about immigrants trying to make a life in America in the heartland on a farm. So if there isn't, if that isn't as American as it can get, then I don't know what's American. To be fair, it's the it's the laws of the Golden Globes. You have to have a film more than fifty percent in English to qualify. Otherwise, you're put in the foreign film category. But it's just such an antiquated rule. They they need to change it. How bizarre! And you know, these awards mean something. We we were up for Golden Globes. We were pushing hard for best song. We did not get it. Um, for a square peg and we put Eva forward for best actress but um, we actually were entered into the Academy Awards by Sony Pictures so we're we're in the middle of our campaign right now it's hard to get noticed it's a very strong year for films they were they were um, behind our film enough to enter us which is a, is a great honor and, and very humbling that's awesome I actually one of the first things I did when I saw that the nominations were out was I looked for the song category to see yeah it yeah we're we're pushing for it we're pushing for it. we'll we'll still see we we still have the uh the Oscars to go but globes oh, are well, interesting for you. thank you thank you you know I think I hope we have a chance because you know unlike a lot of the song nominees this year our movie is about the song it's in the film it's like you <laughs> right. see her write it throughout the entire film and it's an anthem for I, you know, for for anyone who feels out of place. I'm talking about Square Peg, or, or in in other words, like the dreamers or immigrants in general. So, uh, I'm I'm doing my little flag flying, plug myself. <laughs> oh, and I will be right there with you doing it because they are both amazing singers, Dale Watson and uh, Avon Noblezada. Just Thank crazy. You. They are, right? Crazy good, crazy good. Yeah, it's something that you don't expect to work together just because they they have such different styles, but man, those songs work. Thank you. That's one of the things I'm most proud of. I have the soundtrack on my my iPhone right now. No way! Oh my God, that's so awesome. And I'm not even a country fan. Country is like my traditionally my least favorite genre, and I think it's my only country album on my whole, in my whole library. There you go. I mean... I, I wasn't really a country fan when I wrote this story, but I definitely have become one since. Well, let's get into our list. All right. Top five directorial debuts. Um, you already kind of talked about your inspiration for the list. Yeah, let's just start with your number five. Diane Paragas, what's your number five? I am going to start with City of God, which is Fernando Morales' uh, beautiful film set in Brazil. Rio de Janeiro, the beach, the nightlife the romance but 15 miles from paradise is a place called the city of god a place where one man must infiltrate a war between two crime lords to tell a story the world needs to know Um, about a favela and these boys that live in a favela. Um, it is one of my favorite films ever made. It is a beautiful, beautiful film. If people don't know his work, he he also did The Constant Gardener. He also directed The Two Popes, which just came out recently. Um, Brazilian director, incredible, incredible film. And to say that that's his first film is just blows me out of the water. That has a character named Lil Z that will forever haunt me. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. City of God, 2002. If you have never seen City of God, do yourself a favor, sit down and uh, 
it's a very bleak movie. It it will affect you deeply, but it's an awesome film. I'll go to my number five, which is the only film. So when I was compiling my list, my only requirement was it had to be a film that I haven't brought up on the show before. Oh, there's okay. One, there's one that I had to to put on there because I can't leave it off. It's been such a huge inspiration for me and my writing. And that's Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs from 1992. Hey, your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared in case I fall off the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. It's so hard to keep this mouth from my face. Starring Steve Buscemi, Harvey Keitel, and Michael Madsen, Tim Roth. It's so unique because it's a heist film that doesn't show the heist. And the participants of the heist just regroup at this warehouse to figure out what went wrong and which of them tipped off the buzz. But this movie really showed how brilliant Quentin Tarantino's dialogue was and his style. It was a huge inspiration for me. The very first film that I ever put, it was a short film that I wrote and directed and starred in that I put into a film festival was based basically a ripoff of Reservoir Dogs, which is probably horrible now. And I didn't win anything from the, from the festival, but that's how much of an inspiration it was to me. I love Reservoir Dogs. And as a debut, it's it's got a level of confidence that you rarely see. So that's my number five, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs in 1992. I'm going for my next film, um, Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. What they got out there, Eddie Wyola? Life, child, the beginning of a new life. Just because we cross over to the mainland, it doesn't mean we don't love you. I can leave this soil. This soil. See, we came here in chains. When they go down in the water, they ain't never come up. And nobody can walk on water. I need to know that I can come and hold on to what I come from. Which is a very kind of surreal film set in the Gullah. It, uh, you know, she's... I think the reason I, I put this on my list is I remember when I saw it, it was just, there was kind of no plot. It was this very beautifully, just cinematically gorgeous piece. And it was a female director, um, which at the time I just didn't see that many of. And as I said before, that was one of the reasons it took me so long to get to the point to make a film. But her film is so lyrical and so beautiful. I have to look up the year. I'm sure or you're doing it probably. <laughs> um, 1991. 1991, okay. Um, so yeah, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. It's just one of the most beautiful films you'll ever see. And, it, you know, again, it's it's magical realism, but there's sort of, um, you know, African-American mysticism in it. And it's just, there's no, you know, still, there's not ever been a film like it. The landscape is in this sort of dust and sky and every the palette is very strong. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. 
Daughters of the Dust. This is a film that I've never heard of, but I just wrote it down on my list to watch. Yes. Very cool. Great choice. My number four is from 1989. It's Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'm going to take out Diane Court. Diane Court doesn't go out. She's a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess. We don't want to see you get hurt. I want to get hurt. Diane Court. Hello, Diane. Hi. Lloyd Dobler, sir. I'm an athlete, so I rarely drink. Kickboxing. Have you heard of kickboxing? Sport of the future? I can see by your face, no. My point is you can relax because your daughter will be safe with me for the next seven to eight hours, sir. Did you really come here with Lloyd Dobler? This one's known, obviously, everybody knows the iconic scene with John Cusack holding the boombox over his head. That's from this movie if you've never seen it. But it's so much more than that. It's one of the best romantic comedies that I think has ever been made. I agree. It's about an offbeat, like underachieving, eternal optimist who's in love with somebody who everybody considers to be out of his league. Her name is Diane Court, played by Ioni Skye. And she's described as a brain trapped in the body of a game show host. And of course, these two have completely different upbringings. She's really sheltered. She's rich. He's not rich. He's just kind of out there. And nobody thinks it's going to work, especially Diane Court's father, Jim, who tries to get in between the romance. But so many like really great developed characters. And it also has some heavy themes that you didn't really see for like these high school romance movies. Uh, and it's got great quotes too, like all kinds of quotes. I gave her my heart. She gave me a pen. What's better than that quote? Cameron Crowe's Say Anything from 1989, which hasn't been mentioned on this show before. So I'm glad that I, I finally get to talk about Say Anything. Um, I have a great analogy for that because um, I am one of the, one of the films I'm attached to direct is a film with Eric Feig who's producing and Scooter Braun is also producing, but it's a sort of love story, um, young love story. And all over my, when I was pitching to win the directorial attachment, I used say anything. I talked a lot about oh, saying yeah. anything because um, to me, it is the quintessential young love story. And um, you know, the scene where he holds up the boom box it's just burned into everyone's memory. And it's almost like that's a mark of a great love story is when you can remember that moment where you're in the Philippines In Philippine films, they call it the Kilig moment. And Kilig means when you kind of shake all over and you, it, it like hits your soul. And, you know, rom-coms are the number one type of movie in the Philippines. So it, you know, they always ask you like, what's the Kilig moment? What's that moment where your heart, and, 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 and the best way to describe it to me is like, you know when John Cusack holds up the boombox? That's a killing <laughs> moment. And so, anyway, I love that film. I, that's a great, great choice. So that's Yeah, that's my number four. Say anything. On to your number three. I uh, chose Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by Michelle Gondry. Hello, I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. 
This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. He was a music video director before directing this. Um, it's, again, one of my favorite films of all time about uh, Jim Carrey and um, uh, Kate Winslet. Um, you know, they, they're in a relationship and they break up and, and he has to go and he goes to this guy who can erase his memories and it's about memory and love. And it's just so, so brilliant. Um, again, one of my favorite films of all time. And this is the one where I cheated, but I might drop another one off the list. Cause I also have, <laughs> I, I'm going to jump ahead to being John Malkovich only because it was both written by Charlie Kaufman um, yep. and that's Spike Jones. And those two films, I always put those two films together anyway. And there are, you know, they're very different, yet they're very similar. And um, it's so interesting because they are, they are my favorite films from those two directors. And it was, you know, sort of this one guy, this one guy's voice behind them. So um, that was my cheat. <laughs> I couldn't decide between those two. And so I was like, I hope he lets me put them together. Those are both great choices. I would have put being John Malkovich on my list if I had not brought it up on another one of my lists. Ah, there you go. There you go. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind has one of the best casts, too. Mm -hmm. um, Jim Carrey gets to play a really great role. You, like you said, Kate Winslet, but it's also got Kirsten Dunst, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, Tom Wilkinson, David Cross. Like, There's so many great people in there. So many. But also just the concept and the way it was realized on screen. It's very, very intricate filmmaking, very, very high level of difficulty on both of those films. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at just the premise of being John Malkovich, it sounds like something that would never work. And then it, it was nominated for Best Screenplay. Absolutely. And, and one thing, um, I don't know how many film cinephile type people, it's just interesting to me to see the difference of taking one, one writer's voice, and he's such a unique voice, and how different, different directors interpret it, and then how he interprets his own work. He has the film out now, um, I'm thinking of ending things is, is him directing and writing. And it's, they're all very, very different. So it's, it's, it's interesting to look, to look at that and, uh, and see how different directors, including himself, direct his own, his writing. I love both of those films, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Being John Malkovich. Tied for your number three. For my number three, I went with, this is my oldest film on the list from 1984, Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap. Good choice. Through two decades, 17 classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs, they changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. Now, they're on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Rock and roll. This is their moment. Go right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah, turn right. Their time has come. Rock and roll. Any minute now. Any second. Hello, stage. I think we're lost. There's a little jog there, about 30 feet. Jog to the left. Get ready. Get set. So this is kind of like the the movie that birthed the mockumentary style movie although there were mockumentaries before it this was really the first to hit mainstream and hit big it's this 
rock and roll band called Spinal Tap, and it follows them as they embark on their first American tour. So they're supposed to be this the loudest British rock band of all time. They're making their comeback. They're doing an American tour. And Rob Reiner plays this director that's getting it all on film. Um, still today, it's funny. And so many quotable moments, including, and a lot of people who haven't seen This Is Spinal Tap won't know this, but when you say turn it up to 11, it's from this film when they have an amp that they think if they turn it up to 11, they're going to go <laughs> that much louder. Incredible mockumentary. And Rob Reiner, just as a filmmaker, I think is underrated or overlooked when it comes to lists of amazing directors. His output, like if you think about the movies that he did in a row after this, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and then Misery, and yep. then A Few Good Men, that's a hell of a run. Oh, yeah. He's extreme. And you're right. He's underrated. He is an underrated director. Although his films are so studied in film schools, especially when Harry met Sally. I mean, that's in, that's like part of the core curriculum at USC. So he is underrated. I, I agree with you. Rob Reiner, this is Spinal Tap from 1984. If you like mockumentaries, go check this out. It's so good. This is Spinal Tap also had a band that put out music because of this. So yeah, check that out. My number two is kind of obvious and kind of boring, but I have to put it on here because I just watched it recently. And that is Citizen Kane by Orson Welles. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's pretty nice ballyhoo. But here are some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Joseph Cotton, I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth, look at the camera, Ruth. <laughs> we caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful, Ray Collins. Um, I watched it right after I watched Mank, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And, and you're just reminded of what a complete genius he was and what a complete masterwork it is. It totally holds up. Charles Foster Kane, um, and it's a, it's a great double feature to watch Mank and then watch Citizen Kane. It's, it's a real pleasure to, to sort of know what at least David Fincher's imagining of what the writing of it was all about. Um, but it just holds up. And it kind of, it kind of made me feel like Mank, <laughs> Mank wasn't as great as it could have been. But you know, <laughs> just because you're like, oh man, this is just on a different level. Uh, so, so amazing, so great. Yeah, this is another one that uh, has been on a list before for me, so I couldn't add it on this list. And I don't know if you've heard of the the film RKO 281. No, you I haven't. that one before? No. So highly recommend that to you as well. That's from uh, 1999. It's about the production behind Citizen Kane. And it's got a great cast too. John Malkovich, Melanie Griffin, Liev Schreiber, uh, James Cromwell. So put that on your to-watch list. Cool. Um, my number two is going to be from 2017, Jordan Peele's Get Out. 
So you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> <laughs> we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. smoke in front of my daughter. I'm gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are you ready for this? I'm back in the beat. So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? Couldn't see another brother around here. I was always a fan of Jordan Peele's comedy, but I had no idea what he was capable of in the horror world. And I don't know that anybody else did either, but he won the best screenplay Oscar for Get Out. I feel like everybody's going to know about Get Out, but it follows Chris, a young African-American man who heads with his white girlfriend to her parents' house for the weekend. And when he gets there, things kind of seem off, but he doesn't really know what's going on other than the other African-American people at the property, like the housekeeper and the groundskeeper, are acting very strange. And it escalates from there into just insanity it's got a killer cast with uh, daniel kaluuya allison williams katherine keener bradley whitford stephen root and uh lakeith stanfield daniel kaluuya's performance is the standout here it is brilliant lil rel howry as tsa rod is hilarious yeah, he's hilarious it's such a great film he adds much needed laughs but yeah it's i can't get into the themes without spoiling the film so just go watch get out it's it's amazing Awesome. We're at your number one now. Yeah, we're at my number one. And I struggled with it. There's so many films. And I wanted to choose this film because, one, I wanted to put another female director on the list. But also, I'm a fan of this director. And when I thought about it, this movie is so underrated because I really feel like it was a seminal film that changed the way a teenage angsty movie uh, is made. And that's Sofia Coppola's Virgin Suicides, 1999. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. Now, whenever we run into each other at business lunches or cocktail parties, we find ourselves in the corner going over the evidence one more time. All to understand those five girls. But after all these years, we can't get out of our minds. Cecilia, the youngest, was 13. And Lux was 14. Bonnie was 15. Mary was 16. And Therese was 17. No one could understand how Mrs. Lisbon and Mr. Lisbon, our math teacher, had produced such beautiful creatures. People probably think that Lost in Translation was her first film, but it was actually Virgin Suicides. Yeah. And it was based on a book by Jeffrey Eugenides, and it's about Kirsten Dunst who, um, and, and her sisters, and, and one of them attempts suicide and how they kind of get through it. But it was something that was very, very, that feels very current because I think a lot of people imitated this movie um, moving forward. It was soundtrack driven. It was the visual style was very evocative um, and it just 
it had such a strong voice. She had such a strong voice and such a strong visual style. And I think people kind of at the time maybe didn't take her seriously because she's like, oh, daddy's girl, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. She's not a serious voice. But, um, you know, obviously with with her body of work, we know that she is a real talent. And um, and I remember thinking and the soundtrack by air is so incredible and it's just, you know, it just shows the promise of a really, really talented director. And I, I admire how how varied her body of work is, but you can always feel her sense sensibilities in them. And it's very apparent in this film. That's uh, Virgin Suicides from 1999. My number one is from A Pair of Brothers. It's a film that I just completely am in love with from 1993, the Hughes Brothers and their debut, Menace to Society. Mm-hmm. Great film. Being a black man in America isn't easy. All I'm saying is survive. You need to be glad that you graduated from high school and that you're alive at 18. And you need to do something with yourself before you end up like he did. I'm not going to end up like he did, all right? Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way. Oh, man, you know I'm down, but I also know that life has better things to offer than what's on the street out there. Why are you so worried about me? Why shouldn't I be? This is often compared to Boys in the Hood, which came out in 1991. I might be in the minority, but I actually like Menace to Society more. It doesn't flesh out the themes of Boys in the Hood as well as that film does, but I think it spends more time with the kind of day-to-day life of these characters. It's amazing. It follows the life of this kid named Kane, a young man in South Central L.A., whose life has been wrapped up in drugs and violence, and his best friend O-Dog, who's insane, played by Laren's Tate in one of my favorite roles of his. Uh, his performance as O-Dog is equal parts comedic, carefree, and terrifying. Like mm, he'll just true. turn violent at the drop of a hat. It's got a great opening scene that really sets the stage. And when you mentioned uh, Virgin Suicides being a really soundtrack-driven film, I think this has one of the best hip-hop soundtracks of all time. I just couldn't believe that it was the Hughes Brothers' first film when I was going through my list. I, it was tough to to realize that Menace to Society was their first. And I really wish they were still making movies. They are. Um, one of them is doing documentaries, did the Dr. Dre film, and, and the other one is doing is a film coming out. Oh, I, I thought they were working on TV. One of them did the, you know, the Dr. Dre uh, documentary with Jimmy Iovine, um, which mm-hmm. was awesome. And um, I know he just completed another film, another doc. So they're, they're working. They're working again. They're, they're out there. Diane Paragas, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for going through this list with us. Yeah, it was fun. Um, I, I got a couple more questions about Yellow Rose. Sure. As a screenwriter myself, how many drafts did you go through? No, a lot. M- <laughs> mostly because of the time. It just was like... Sure. You know, I think it was also just a lack of confidence. Writing is not that supernatural to me. I'm very fast with story. Like I get story right away, but then to sort of craft all the dialogue and all that stuff, 
takes time, but I can't even count. It, it was over 15 years, the gap of when I started to when it actually got made. So I'm going to say there were at least 20 drafts. And I mean, oh, wow. very, very different um, drafts. Like even the draft we did before what is currently on screen was very different because Trump got elected between those two drafts. And mm-hmm. so we just, I took a very sharp right turn to sort of lean more into the immigration experience and what happens with the mother. Uh, whereas all the other drafts, she sort of gets arrested and you kind of don't see her again. Got and it. I wanted to sort of know what that process looked like as she moved forward through the system. Um, and and really to put Rose in the peril of, of what dreamers go through. Um, up until that point, it was much more about Rose and Dale, Dale's character. Um, who was called Jimmy Redburn on the page. I ended up just making him himself play a meta version of himself. But um, before that, it was much more about her artist journey with him and trying to, trying to become a country star. So um, it, it kind of leaned more into the other way because the times were changing, you know? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it worked. I, as somebody who hasn't had a whole lot of experience with that world, it, infuriated me yeah watching watching the monstrosity that was the immigration system yeah and that's nothing compared to what other you know our movie was relatively tame to what happens some of these kids are much younger and put in cages as we all know so um it's actually much worse than what we portrayed on the film which is even more horrifying and sad and and, and tragic but i hope i hope if people watch this movie, it gives them a glimpse into the humanity of what happens to these families. Any last words about Yellow Rose? Any last pitch for somebody to go watch it? Yeah, so um, please watch us. We're on all forms of, um, like you said, it's on all platforms for rental, um, Amazon, Apple, Vudu, YouTube, all those places. And um, yeah, on, on VOD and then DVD and Blu-ray for those people that still watch that. And we, we launched in the Philippines, which I'm very excited about. We premiered uh, last week. And um, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's got a wide release there. And it's kind of a big deal for the movie to come home. So to the Philippines. So yeah, thank you for having me. What a cool show. I love lists. I love lists. Like those are, <laughs> This is a really cool show, but thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Go listen to the soundtrack. Go buy the film. Go rent the film. Go watch it. Yellow Rose, it's awesome. And you'll see a star turn from uh, Ava Noblezada. It's it's great. Folks, if you want to be a guest on Force 5, the only requirement is that you love movies and want to talk about them. So if you have a top five list that you want the world to discuss, head to the website force5podcast.com, which has a show request form and other Force 5 related stuff. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch Yellow Rose.